0: Hi, I'm Tyler Saltsy, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news, or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu. Org. That's www.gbfperu.org I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your copies of God's Word and open to the book of Acts this morning. Acts chapter 16. In a moment we will begin reading in verse 16 of Acts chapter 16. I'm reminded that one of the reasons we're going through the book of Acts is to see the loveliness of Jesus Christ? Do you want to see the loveliness of Jesus Christ? Do you see that Jesus Christ is lovely? That's my prayer that we would be able to behold Christ in all of His loveliness and that it would make us be in awe of Him and in awe of what he's doing, and awe of his power, and awe of his majesty, and and awe of how he changes people's lives. So this morning, let's read in Acts chapter 16. If you would stand with me as we read God's word together. I'm going to read from 16 through the end of the chapter And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stalks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. When it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go, therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, And they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let us glory in the loveliness of Christ as we desire to be conformed into the likeness of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I think it's safe to say that we like to see progress. We like to see things that move forward, that are going somewhere. You like to make progress at your job. You like to see progress in the lives of your kids or grandkids. (laughs) You like to see progress in the healing of that rash that you've been battling with for some time. Whatever it might be, when it comes to progress... And we see the progress, it brings optimism, it brings an amount of hope, some amount of feeling good. Nothing in our lives can be more discouraging, more disheartening, or frustrating when we've been hoping for progress, but we've only seen it move in the other direction, away from progress, one step forward, two step back is what we sometimes say. In the book of Acts, we've been seeing progress. We've been looking at how the gospel of Jesus Christ has been advancing through the witness of the apostles and the witness of the church. We've seen this spirit-empowered, word-propelled gospel going from Jerusalem, spreading to Judea, spreading out even further to Samaria, and now to the very ends of the earth. And now to this point, we've actually seen the gospel spread to another continent, to Europe. This advancement, however, has not been without speed bumps along the way. There have been difficulties, powers of opposition that come against the advancement of the gospel. It becomes clear to us that it is no different now that Paul and his missionary team have crossed over into Europe. Even here in this new area, in this place where they've been led by God and called by God to go. The powers of opposition attempt to disable their Christian witness and derail the advancement of the gospel. And for the Christian, we understand that these powers of opposition still are there in our world today as they were then. The world has not changed in this respect. The question for us is, will we fall into believing the opposing power against us is stronger than Christ's power in his mission of advancing the gospel? Who is more powerful? The powers out there in the world or the power of Jesus Christ that is advancing the gospel throughout the whole world? Our text this morning encourages us in showing us just how powerful the advancement of the gospel really is. And how we see that power manifested as the gospel goes forth. So, if we want to see the gospel advance in powerful ways today, in the church, in this church, Just like in the early church, how might we see that happen? Draw our attention to four ways we know the gospel powerfully advances. You can follow along there in your outline if that's helpful in your bulletin. But number one, powerful gospel advancement casts out confusion. Powerful gospel advancement casts out confusion. I read a report this week from Yahoo Financial that reported in 2016, the fortune-telling industry in the United States, so the fortune-telling industry, you maybe see those advertisements on TV or tarot card readings or things like that, that industry employed 85,000 people in the United States and brought in... 2 billion dollars every year 2 billion with a b I saw another report from the economist the date of this finding was february of this year that they reported in south korea the fortune telling industry brings in 3.7 billion dollars every year from these numbers i think it's safe to say the fortune telling industry is a big business. And if we happen to think that this is merely a recent phenomena, we only need to look back to our text this morning to find out this has been going on for quite some time. It's been a business that's always made good money. And this is what Paul and Silas and that team encounters as they are there in this city of Philippi. Remember, Paul The apostle that was converted on the road to Damascus who saw Jesus is now going throughout, proclaiming the gospel message to many different cities. He's on this second missionary journey. They've just crossed the Aegean Sea, and now they are in this city of Philippi in modern-day Greece. A Roman colony. He's there with another man named Silas, who he's brought on his journey. Along the way, they've picked up another man named Timothy and another man named Luke. So we at least know that there are these four men, maybe others as well, but at least these four here on this missionary journey. And they've come to the city of Philippi. They've already seen the Lord do a miraculous work in this life of a woman named Lydia. But their work in that city was not yet done. It says that they were going back to the place of prayer. That's where they went before, where they met Lydia where they shared the gospel with her, where she was converted to Jesus Christ, believed in Him, and so they're going back to that place, and now they're met by a very different kind of woman. Lydia was a wealthy woman, a seller of purple goods, a businesswoman, respected. This woman, now that they meet in verse 16, is quite different altogether. Whereas Lydia was of high standing, was religious, this woman is a slave. She's poor. She has no standing. She is utterly pagan. They could have not been more different. And we're told that this slave girl has a spirit of divination that brought much money to her her owners through fortune telling. And literally, this says that she had a spirit of python python was associated with the roman god apollo in greece symbolized by a snake that's where we get this idea of python snakes And the spirit of python was known to come upon priestesses in that temple who would fall into a trance like state a manic like state and would predict the future or would tell people what was going on in their lives And so people would pay for this. They would pay money, a lot of money, for this woman to do that thing in their lives. And we see, though, that behind this is not merely some superstition, not merely some pagan ritual. We see this is actually a demon that's in this girl's life. This girl is actually demon-possessed. It's the demon who gives her this ability that she had, To tell other people about their lives. And they meet her, and what does she do? She's crying out to Paul and his team These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. If we listen to those words that she is saying to them for a moment, we put them against the backdrop of Jesus' ministry. We know that this is the way that demons speak. In fact, in Luke 8:28, Jesus confronts a man who is demon-possessed and the demon cries out through the man, "What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God?" Do you hear that? In Luke 8:28, the title that the demon uses for Jesus, son of the most high God. And now when you hear this girl yell out against Paul and his team, she uses that same phrase. The Most High God. Why that title? Why is that what the demons cry out? The Most High God is a title of God which pronounces that He is over everything and possesses everything. As the Creator, He is the Most High God who owns everything. And this is the title that Satan and his demons hate the most. They would love nothing more than to overthrow God of this title and attain some of it for their own. It is this title that is at the heart of Satan's rebellion. In Isaiah 14, 14, it talks about Satan's fall and it tells us of Satan's great pride. And here is what is revealed that Satan said in his heart, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the Most High. There is just one problem. There is only one Most High. And Satan didn't want to just be like the Most High. He wanted to attempt to topple the Most High God and take glory and dominion and rule over all things. The fact that this demon-possessed slave girl was following Paul and his team around saying these things, what what even appears to be true things, is not to be considered helpful. Demons always mislead. Demons always lie. Demons will misuse and twist the truth for their own gain and advantage. Demons will name things and pronounce things in order to try to gain the upper hand and subvert the authority and power of Jesus Christ. Here is where we see the problem in these verses. The demon-possessed girl is not trying to advance the gospel, but rather the demon is attempting to confuse. The demon is attempting to distract. The demon, through this proclamation, could even be seen as trying to associate with the gospel. That is, trying to wed together What was going on in the occult, in that pagan religion, trying to wed that to true Christianity? It is an utter abhorrence of a union. The gospel cannot and must not be united with anything else, any other teaching, any other spirituality, or any other form of paganism. This demon possessed girl was persistent for this many days. But finally, it says that Paul became greatly annoyed. He had put up with such confusion and such attempts to subvert the truth of the gospel long enough. And notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't, he doesn't pray. He doesn't engage the demon in a conversation. No, he speaks directly to the demon and commands it to come out in the name of Jesus Christ. It is the power of Jesus Christ that brings out the demon. It is the authority that Jesus Christ has which works this miracle. Who is this that even the unclean spirits obey him? It is no one other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He removes all the confusion brought through this demon. He casts out the disturbance. Isn't this what we need in our world today because there is so much confusion? Confusion that is touted as education and progress. Confusion that is promoted as true spirituality. Confusion that we are told is the truth and we just need to accept it, get with the times and move on. There is just one problem, my friends. Our God is not a God of confusion, but a God of truth. The one who confuses and has been confusing from the beginning is that devil, that serpent, Satan. He desires that our world and the people around us would stay in their confusion. But the gospel of Jesus Christ cuts through all the confusion. It brings absolute clarity to the problem. It brings absolute clarity to our need. It brings absolute clarity to the only way the problem can be solved. The gospel advances powerfully as it casts out confusion. But there is a reason why it casts out confusion. It casts out confusion because there is a high value and a high price on people's lives. This is a slave girl who was released from the greater slavery of demon possession and is given the peace of Jesus Christ. Her life had been changed by Jesus. There is no denying that. Jesus is still the snake-crushing Messiah as evidenced in overthrowing the python spirit that was in this girl. And it is this stamping on the serpent's head that brings clarity, not confusion. That brings truth, not delusion. That brings victory, not defeat. That brings freedom and life, not slavery and death. Number two. Powerful gospel advancement endures unjust persecution. Powerful gospel advancement endures unjust persecution. What an amazing event we have just witnessed. First three verses, Paul, by the power of Jesus Christ, has cast out this demon. It's a a miraculous, supernatural event. But even though we have witnessed this amazing event in Acts, not all are amazed by it. The owners of the slave girl are not impressed. It says they realized their hope of gain was gone. They were profiting from the slave girl. Instead of caring about her life, about who she was, she was merely being used for their own financial gain. The owners did not really care about her as a person. A lucrative source of income was gone, and it made them angry and mad. So they seize Paul and Silas. They drag them before the magistrates or rulers of the city. The last time Paul was dragged somewhere in the book of Acts, he was stoned almost to the point of death. So all indications point to this being an unfavorable event. They bring them before the rulers of the city. And notice, they don't bring the accusation they were really concerned about. They don't say, these men have prevented us from making a lot of money. That wouldn't go anywhere That would not get the magistrate's attention. So they accuse Paul and Silas of false accusations. They make up something, something completely untrue. And look at how they start here in the middle of verse 20. These men. And look back at how the demon in this girl beforehand, what it was saying through this girl These men, it's like the owners of the slave girl are talking just like the demons talk. These men, they are against the gospel, they are against the truth, and ultimately they are against Christ. And they are accusing these men, saying they are Jews, they are disturbing the city, they are promoting lifestyles that are unlawful for Romans. But Paul and Silas were not disturbing the city. They were not propagating unlawful practices. But it didn't matter. Pretty soon the whole crowd starts attacking them, and there is no chance for a defense. They don't even have the opportunity to say, this isn't fair, this isn't just. We haven't even had a trial. We haven't even had a chance to be heard. All of those things didn't matter to the people or the magistrates as they strip off their garments and beat them with rods. This is one of the three times Paul would be beaten with rods. At any time, they could recant. They could have made it all stop, but they didn't. They received such unjust persecution simply because they were advancing the gospel. How do we see the power of gospel advancement in these verses? Even persecution didn't stop the gospel from advancing. Even persecution didn't cause these faithful servants to quit. Even persecution would not keep them down and keep them silent. Persecution does not bring gospel advancement to an end, but actually propels gospel advancement even further. These people thought their power, their authority, could do something to bring this message to an end. But God is more powerful than any persecution we have to endure. And we very likely will endure persecution. They beat these men and throw them into prison and order the jailer to secure them basically as secure as he can. So he puts them in the inner prison, in the dungeon. He puts their feet in stocks which would inflict pain upon them. All of this done unjustly. All of this taking place in the most unfair, disadvantaged circumstances, and all of this happening in the most humiliating, shameful, and painful display that we could imagine. What about us in the midst of persecution? Do we think it's going to be fair? Do we think it's going to be just? Do we think that we will at least receive a fair trial? Do you think you will fare better than these, my friends? Do you think that you will fare any better than Christ? First Peter two twenty three. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How endure unjust persecution and see the gospel. Continue to go forth in power by entrusting yourself to God. You are not your own, you are his. The life you live, you no longer live for yourself but for the one who gave himself for you. Number three. Powerful gospel advancement prioritizes the rescue of salvation. Powerful gospel advancement prioritizes the rescue of salvation. I wonder what you imagine when you think of prison. You think of high security, tall walls with barbed wire fence. You think of small cells and matching clothes on all the inmates. You think of what you see in the movies, what the movies show us about prison. So when we think of Paul and Silas and them being thrown into prison, we cannot think of this prison like the prisons we have maybe seen on television. There was no recreational time. There was no time to sit and watch TV. There were no visitors. Paul and Silas were not thrown into a secured resort. They were thrown into the inner prison. This would have been a prison of complete and utter darkness. Would have, would have been a place of unsanitary conditions. Would have been a place of pain, a place of despair and, Here, Paul and Silas are being kept in pain, being in the unsanitary, disease-infested prison cell with open wounds, having been beaten. They would have been the most deplorable conditions that we could imagine. If we would put ourselves in those kinds of conditions, I wonder what our response would be. Is it worth it, Lord? Is it worth being treated this way? Is it worth suffering this way? Is it worth going through this for the sake of the gospel? For the sake of Jesus Christ? What are we doing here? We could have led a peaceful life. We could have avoided confrontation and humiliation. Now and easily I would see my own faith wane in those moments. But what did Paul and Silas do? It's midnight, and it says they were praying and singing hymns to God. They're having a praise service in the dungeon. They're lifting up their voices through prayer and through song to the great God as a demonstration of their faith and as a renewal to their faith as they remember that all their hope, all their life, everything that they are and everything that they have is completely dependent upon Him If ever there was a time, we would think, well, I could understand why they are not praying. I could understand why they are not singing to God. How often in our life have you thought, it's too difficult. I can't even pray right now. I don't feel like singing right now. I can't do it. Life has gotten me down. Ever been in a dungeon? Pray and sing to God. Lift up your voices to Him, my friends. He is near. He is worthy of all praise and adoration, even in a dark, cavernous, disease-infested, torturous dungeon. And as they do this, all of the other prisoners are listening to them. What a testimony to these prisoners of the greatness of God. And then something miraculous happened happens a great earthquake shakes the foundation of the prison all the doors fly out open all the chains fall off of the prisoners the last time the foundations of something shook it was because god was among them in acts 4 when they were praying for boldness to speak the word the place where they were praying was shaken Or think of when God descended upon Mount Sinai and there the whole mountain shook Or when Isaiah, in chapter 6 of Isaiah, saw the Lord seated on the throne in the temple and the foundations of the temple shook because God was there. So I think we can say this earthquake, while real, physical, a very natural occurrence, was a supernatural earthquake brought about by God to show His power and manifest His presence. He was with Paul and Silas that night in the, the dungeon. He had not left them alone he did not leave them to fend for themselves, to get themselves out. He vindicated them through this earthquake. And the jailer was there. He had been sleeping, but he awakes. All of the doors of the prison are open. And he is about to kill himself, thinking all of the prisoners had escaped. You see, his life was bound to the prisoners' lives. If they escaped, if they got out under his care, it was his life that was at stake. So rather than face any other death, he is about to do himself in. But Paul speaks up Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. That might even sound miraculous in itself. This violent earthquake had just opened a way of escape, a way of rescue, and what happens? No one escaped. No one ran away. Is that what you would have done? Quick, now's our chance to make a break for it. Now's our chance to get out. God has opened the way for us. We must get out now. Look how God has provided for our rescue. But that is not what they do. They stay put in their cells. There is a more important rescue that is about to take place than the potential rescue of Paul and Silas. The jailer rushes in with the lights to see that they are all there and he is filled with so much Fear that he is trembling, he is scared out of his mind. This is not normal, this is something supernatural. This is something bigger and more powerful than anything else that he has ever known before and it terrifies him. He brings them out of the cell and he asks them a very straightforward question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Oh, how I long to hear those words asked today. What a marvelous question. The jailer had been cut to the heart. He knew that he needed something. He knew that there was a profound problem in his life. He needed to be rescued. He needed to be saved. The question is, saved from what? Saved from sin? Yes. Saved from death and the internal punishment of the lake of fire? Yes. But... Even more saved from God, saved from God's powerful judgment and wrath that is to come upon all sinners and is what all sinners justly and rightly deserve because of their sin. Oh, that people today would know, would feel that they need to be saved. A greater rescue of salvation needed to happen that night. It was not a rescue of getting Paul and Silas out of a dungeon. It was about the rescue of a Philippian jailer who had been pierced through to his soul and knew that above anything else, the most uh, pressing question was this. What must I do to be saved? This is the God people must encounter Not a God that we have tamed, not a God that we have made more palatable to people's tastes, not a God of warm fuzzies and sensational emotional experiences, but a God so big, so great, so awesomely terrifying that when he is encountered, people cry out, What must I do to be saved? This is God-centered Christianity, my friends. Fake, false, phony, man-centered Christianity never asks that question. It is too busy focused on us, on man, on making us feel good and making us feel comfortable. Oh, that people would feel the burden that they need to be saved. And that they would be willing to ask that question. And Paul gives the most beautiful, direct answer that we could think of. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. You want to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is as if... Paul is saying you don't need to do anything to be saved. You need to believe that Jesus Christ has done it all. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. That he has done everything required so that you can be saved from the judgment and wrath of God. Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice. He received the punishment and wrath of God you deserved there on the cross. He died the death which you deserve to die. He took our sins upon himself and shed his blood for our sins so that we might be cleansed and completely forgiven and he rose again from the dead on the third day overcoming death and the grave and securing life for all those who believe in him and follow him so what what must One do to be saved. Believe in Him. Put your full trust in Him and you will be saved. And I love the absolute certainty of salvation in that statement. You will be saved. Not you might be saved. Not you hope to be saved. Not the first step of salvation and now you have to do the rest. No, you will be saved if you have believed. When you believe... There is absolute assurance that you will be saved. There is no need for doubting, my friends. If you truly believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. Not only would the jailer be saved, but the message even goes out to his whole household. It says, Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to him that night. They continued to explain the gospel to him and to his whole house. And he believed. For the very first time he believed. He once had not believed. He once was dead in his trespasses and sins. He once did not know God, did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He once lived only for himself, going his own way, doing what he wanted to do, doing what he thought was best. But now everything had changed. His life had been transformed by Jesus Christ. And I find it fascinating that the jailer then takes Paul and Silas and washes the wounds they had received from the beating. Here is the one who had just believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the one who had just repented of sin. Here is the one who had just found eternal life in Christ. The one who had just been given peace. The one who had just been healed of his own wounds. Here is the one who had come to know the suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities, upon whom was the chastisement that brought us peace and by whose wounds we are healed. And here he is now washing the wounds of Paul and Silas and he is baptized at once. He and his whole family, everyone who had believed in Jesus Christ, were baptized. And that's the pattern we see time and time again. Believe and then you are baptized. As a beautiful picture that one is united to Christ. That one who was once dead is now alive. The one who was once under condemnation and judgment is now free and blessed. The one who was once unclean has been washed clean and forgiven of all his sins. And what happens after such a great salvation? Rejoicing. He and his whole house rejoiced that he had believed in God. Do we prioritize the rescue of salvation and pray for it and long to see it happen in people's lives? Are we ready when people cry out and ask the question, what must I do to be saved? Are we ready to give them the straight answer, believe the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And then, together, as we see people come to know Jesus Christ and love Jesus Christ and, and find Him to be the great, their greatest treasure, we would rejoice with them. If you want to see the gospel powerfully advance, there is nowhere greater to see its power than in the salvation of sinners. Number four. Powerful gospel advancement defends the gospel's reputation. Powerful gospel advancement defends the gospel's reputation. People are often concerned about their reputation. In fact, people will go to great lengths to ensure that their reputation is held in high esteem by others. It can even become a facade. They want their reputation to be a good reputation, but the person behind the reputation is less than respectable, less than good. It can take much time and effort to maintain a good reputation. Why do we go through all of that? Why do people go through all of that trouble trying to maintain their reputation? Because we care about ourselves. We care about what people think of us. We care about having a good reputation. We easily and naturally care about ourselves. Do we care about the reputation of the gospel? Do we care if the gospel of Jesus Christ has a good reputation? Are we willing to stand up for the reputation of the true gospel and defend the reputation of the true gospel? This is what we see Paul and Silas do in these last few verses. The magistrates send the police to the Philippian jailer, saying, let them go. And the jailer relays the message from the police to Paul and Silas. And he even encourages them to come out, go in peace but Paul refuses. Do you see what he says there? They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. Why would Paul say that? It might seem contrary to what we would do. Paul, just leave it alone. Don't make more of a scene. Just leave it and move on. It's not worth it. But notice the magistrates were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. Roman citizens were protected by certain rights. They were supposed to receive a fair trial if there were any accusations that were brought against them. The magistrates were afraid because they could have been in big trouble for the way they had treated Paul and Silas. But even more, I believe what we see Paul do here is stand up for the gospel's reputation. If they went away secretly, it would have validated what the magistrates had done to them. It would have made acceptable the treatment they received simply because they proclaimed the gospel. By having the magistrates come and apologize and take them out, it was a proclamation that the gospel is no threat to the Romans or to Roman society. It was a demonstration that people who preach this Christian gospel and who who have been treated unfairly and unjustly simply because they preach this gospel do not deserve such humiliation and shame. This defense of the gospel's reputation was also important for the church that was to remain there in Philippi. How might the church have been treated those who preached and proclaimed the same gospel who were closely connected to these two men who had been beaten and thrown into the prison? How would they be treated if they were to continue there in this city? Would it be acceptable To treat these people the same way? Paul, standing up for the reputation of the gospel would be a great benefit for the church and for the continued advancement of the gospel in that city. The gospel was something to be heard, it was something to be listened to. It wasn't a danger, it didn't pose any threat to the people. And that was important because the gospel would continue to spread in that town. And many more people would hear the gospel and come to Christ. Are we willing to defend the reputation of the gospel? Are we willing to defend the reputation of the true gospel against the false gospels that are out there in the world? Are we willing to do this because we care about the gospel? Are we willing to do this ultimately because we care about Christ? We don't want lies spread around about Christ. We don't want people to be damaged in any way that they might think about Christ, or how they might think about the gospel, or how they might view Christ's church. We defend the gospel's reputation because it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believe, who believes. Souls are at stake. We must defend the gospel. And we pray for this powerful gospel advancement to happen in this church today. That we would see these things taking place all around us in this church. And that means that these things also must be taking place in your life. If the gospel is going to powerfully advance around us, it must first be advancing and progressing in our own lives. This is in fact what Paul writes to that church in Philippi, in his epistle to them. Philippians 1, 25-27 says this, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. May our lives be worthy of the gospel of Christ, and may we see the gospel powerfully advance in us, And in our midst. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, use your word in us. Grow us, stretch us, strengthen us. And we pray for this powerful gospel advancement to happen first in our own hearts, that we would understand the gospel. That we would see the implications of the gospel upon our lives every single day. And that it affects how we live our lives every single day. And we pray for this powerful gospel advancement to go out from us in our midst. That the gospel would go out in our community, in our state, in our nation, and around the world. Lord, we need you to do this work. We depend upon you for this work. We pray that many people might ask that question. What must I do to be saved? And that we would be quick and ready with the straight answer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Thank you for that assurance that only you can give because only you can save. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.